your Bibles, turn with me to the Old Testament, to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Last week we considered together from Matthew chapter 11 the greatest invitation. Jesus said, come to me, I'll give you rest. And this morning I want to consider with you the greatest comfort, Psalm 139. So we shall read the psalm together, 139. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. Now let's pray together. Father, what a passage that lies before us, the Psalm of David. So profound, so rich. And we pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit you would help us to grasp and understand it and all its intricate parts. Open our eyes to see Jesus, we pray. And give us ears to hear and minds and hearts to receive and believe your word. So we thank you for this passage and ask for your help as it is proclaimed to us. 
may you receive all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> now here's a psalm I think that we all would recognize as being a psalm that is so beautiful, so profound, and so rich for each of us to understand. And I think it's right to say that over the years it has proven to be a psalm of immense comfort to God's people. You read what David says and you, you experience and you sense that he wants to know more of God and he wants to be part of whatever God is doing. So it is without question to every Christian, to every believer, this uh, incredible comfort. And I think there are good reasons uh, why we can say that. For instance, will you notice in verse 3, God is acquainted with all my ways. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. So, God is acquainted with all my ways. Secondly, notice verse 4, God is acquainted with all my words, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. What is there more than to life than that? Your conduct, your conversation, right? Your ways and your words. And David says, as to your conduct and as to your conversation, he says, God knows them all. There's not a hidden way from God, and there's not an unspoken word that God does not know so perfectly. So my conduct and my conversation, my ways, my words, they lie on the surface like an open book to God, and He knows them and He sees them. But perhaps... More closer to home, though, is verse 2. What does he say in verse 2? God is acquainted with my thoughts. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. So there are these things that are on the outside, my conduct, my ways. There are words that I say, but now, there are these things that are within me, in my mind, that only I know about, or think only I know about, but God, He sees them clearly. He discerns the intent of your thoughts and my thoughts. That strikes a little closer to home. My ways and my conduct, they happen all the time, but they're out there to be seen, but not my thoughts. You can't see what I think, and I can't see what you think, but God can, and God sees. Now, you know, David has written some, some beautiful psalms for us, hasn't he? I mean, Psalm 1 is such a glorious introduction, isn't it, to the Psalter, to this book of Psalms. How blessed is the man who doesn't do this, 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 stand, sit, and walk but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates. How often? Day and night. Right? Oh, what a beautiful psalm that is. Or, when you think about Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I mean, how, how more beautiful and comforting can such a psalm be? And David reveals to us even his own heart when he sins against God, doesn't he, in Psalm 51. My sins are not hidden from you, so cleanse my heart. Do a work within me, God, as he confesses his sins. Or the great Psalm 110, with 
all of its quotations found in the New Testament, the most often in the New Testament, Psalm 110. Well, what about Psalm 119? Such a lengthy exposition of the law, of the word, of the promises, of the judgments, the commandments of God. Yes, there's no question. David has written marvelous psalms, beautiful psalms, and he has written those incredible messianic psalms for us, hasn't he? You read about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 16. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. There in Psalm 22, you read about the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me and the depths of that suffering? David reveals in those messianic psalms and in Psalm 41 and Psalm 49 and Psalm 69 and Psalm 89 and Psalm 109. All messianic psalms, so many of them. That's what Jesus unfolded to his disciples, didn't he? On the way to Emmaus, the things concerning himself in the psalms, in the law in the prophets. And so David has written these beautiful psalms for us. But here, in Psalm 139, he has perhaps reached the pinnacle of an exploration of asking God to intervene so that he might know God more, that he might be in a better relationship with God. And here we are, dear brothers and sisters, standing at the onset of a new year. A year that is already in the minds of many people fraught with trouble, fraught with fears. And yet God would say to His people in Psalm 139, I know all things about every single thing there is to know. Why would you need to fear when I am God like that? This is a beautiful psalm for us to think. David is thinking of God and how God thinks of David. He says, one thing to think of God, but what does God think of me? That's what David is doing in Psalm 139. You will notice how he excludes those who reject God. In verses 19 through 22, those who refuse God, he calls them the wicked. They have nothing to do with God. They don't know anything about God. They don't care about God. They, are, they reject God. The wicked, he says, they speak derisively about God. In other words, the words and the ways of the wicked are known to God, but they are evil ways and they are wretched ways. In fact, David says they are murderers in their minds and in their hearts and in their actions. They are malicious. They blaspheme God and they blame God for everything. David rejects that, doesn't he? David refuses their company. He doesn't want that. He thinks of them as God thinks of them. He looks upon them, he sees them, he speaks of them as God speaks of them. <clears throat> That's a device, an interpretive device that we know as imprecation. Right? What is imprecation? Imprecation is calling down the judgments and the curses of God upon the ungodly. That's what David is using in nine, verses 19 through 22. But apart from the imprecatory verses 19 through 22, the rest of the psalm is about David and God. But don't leave out verses 19 and through 22 because they are the basis for what he says at the end in verse 23 and verse 24. What I like about this psalm is that David uses personal language, I, me, 
all throughout the psalm, every, everywhere you read, it's, it's me and I, you have done this, God, you know this about me. That language is everywhere throughout the psalm. It's, this is a personal psalm. This is like you and me quoting Psalm 23 to ourselves. The Lord is my shepherd, right? My shepherd. You know he's personal. That's what David is doing. And this personal element by David in Psalm 139 is very persuasive and very powerful because he is revealing his heart. Now, you know, most of us don't like to expose our hearts to others. You might even be afraid to expose your heart to God. But you know God sees it. And not only sees it, but he knows it. He knows all the details, the ins and the outs that you think in the crevices, whatever it is you might hide are hidden from him. But we know that they're not. So David, David being aware of his weaknesses and being aware of his sinfulness, opens himself up to God. I want to know you, God, as you know me. That's our desire. I think it's a good desire for, for this year, for 2022, that I want to know God as God knows me. So David is thinking on God. He's meditating on God. Is there a greater subject to think on in all of the world than God? God fills everything. God is, is everywhere present as we confess and believe. This God, what better thing to think on than to think on God? What a great subject. Mr. Spurgeon says, this Psalm 139, it sings the omniscience of God. It sings the omnipotence of God. It sings the omnipresence of God. It is like the brightness, he says, of a sapphire stone. In fact, it is so filled with light, it turns the night into day. Beautiful words, aren't they? This is Psalm 139. There are four ways that you can see and look at from Psalm 139 that ought to be a comfort to us. And I think David takes comfort himself from these. Will you notice these four things? And I want to talk today about these four things. Number one, in verses 1 through 6, God knows you completely. Verses 1 through 6, God knows you completely. Second, in verses 7 through 12, God is always with you. God is always with you. And then third, verses 13 through 22, God has total control over your life. God has total control over your life. And finally, the last two verses, 23 and 24, God cares absolutely about you. In the psalm, God shows us his knowledge of ourselves. He manifests his presence to us. And he reveals his power over us, doesn't he? God knows me. God's everywhere. God's all-powerful. God directs my life, David says, in the light of those incredible truths, right? So theologically speaking, as David thinks about God, that's what he's thinking on. He's, he's thinking on God's omniscience. God knows everything. Everything there is to know about me, God knows, he says. He's thinking about God's omnipresence. You can't escape from God. You can't run away from God. God is everywhere. 
He's thinking about God's omnipotence, that God is the only one who is all-powerful. Remember, David is a king. He has a lot of power. But that's nothing compared to God, who is all-powerful. We call these things, the omniscience, the omnipotence, and the omnipresence of God, we call them incommunicable attributes. In other words, you cannot have them, and I cannot have them. I cannot be omniscient. I cannot be omnipresent. I cannot be omnipotent, and neither can you. They are incommunicable. They belong only to God. They are essential to God's being, to who God is. This is God that is being talked about here, these essential descriptions and attributes. So if you did know everything, and if you were everywhere, and if you had all power, what would you be? You would be God. But it cannot be, right? We are not God. We can never be God. But isn't that the very thing that man is so desperately trying to do? Isn't that idolatry? That man seeks to be as God? And yet, can an idol be everywhere? No. Does an idol have all power? No. That's why there's so many of them. And all of them are still not any powerful. And so, these attributes, they belong to God. And when we, as we know God, we say they belong to the Father and to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the Holy Spirit equally. That the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit is omniscient. And so on and so forth. It is these attributes then that David weaves in Psalm 139 that bring comfort to him as he thinks about them, as he meditates on them. These are the things that, that stir him up and fill him and encourage him. Do you know why that is? Because David's not really thinking on himself, but he's thinking on God. That's the big difference in living life for the glory of God. You stop thinking of yourself and you start thinking of God. These are attributes that are unique to God. They only belong to God. And they belong to the God that is revealed in the Bible to us. This God that is described in Old Testament and New Testament. The same God. This, these attributes are God. All the false idols, all of the false gods of the Old Testament and the New Testament era, all of them fail to be anything like God. In fact, we might say that they are miserable imitations, but imitation is too good a word to use, because who can compare with God? Counterfeit is not enough, because it's just not anywhere near what God is and who God is like. I mean, do you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 5 when the Philistines had stolen the Ark of the Covenant? And they had it in their various cities and all the trouble that they had because they had God's Ark and it was in the place, the cities of the Philistines, of the false god Dagon, where it shouldn't have been. But there was Dagon fallen flat on his face. And they realized that God bringing tumors and all of these things to them was enough to scare them away. And so they sent the Ark of the Covenant back. But from a practical standpoint, right, this is a theolo we've looked at that from a theological perspective, but I want to know the practical applications of Psalm 139 for my life, just as David is thinking on them. 
From a practical standpoint, may I say to you that God speaks to us about His providence, number one, and God speaks to us about His predestination, number two, which are two of the most significant and important and comforting thoughts in all of the Bible, which, by the way, are everywhere in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. What do I mean by that? The providence of God. The controlling, executing of the divine will of God in everything. William Ames, one of the earlier theologians, he says that the good pleasure of God is the demonstration of the doctrine of the providence of God. God intervening, God controlling, and so on. God controls all things, but when we talk about predestination, God ordains, God chooses all things. Now, people don't like to know that God controls all things, especially them, and God chooses all things. They don't like to know those things, but these are the things we read in the Scriptures. Or to put it another way, there is nothing about you that excludes or escapes God. Nothing. It doesn't matter what work you do. It doesn't matter what sport you play. It doesn't matter what relationships you have. It doesn't matter who your friends are. It doesn't, nothing like that excludes God. God cannot be excluded even from the wicked's life because that's how the wicked know that there is a God and they are accountable to Him. He makes Himself known not only in the image that they are created in, but their conscience accuses them, convicts them as they are confronted in the world by the realities of God and Himself. So there is nothing in the world Nothing at all that escapes God in life. And therefore we say nothing can be left to chance because chance does not exist. Fortune does not exist. Luck does not exist. It is only the providence of God and the predestination of God. Even our sins remind us of God, don't they? Because they are sins against God. And every time we sin we know we have offended God and done something to Him and brought our relationship into dispute with them. So having said that, let me cons let's consider together some of these truths here. Number one, God knows me, and He knows you completely. Verses 1 through 6. You know, one of the consequences of sin is that we all tend to think we know more than someone else, or we are better than someone else. And usually, we base that on our experiences. Uh, in the normal natural world, an adult knows more than a child. Why? Because of experience. Life's experience. We put that down to maturity, right? Which is a process, which is a growth, which is knowing certain things. And yet, when we think of others, we don't normally think like that from that perspective, a mature perspective, we compare ourselves with others because we think we are better than them or that we know better than them. That's why Paul, in Romans chapter 12, after telling us in verses 1 and 2 that we should submit or surrender or yield our bodies as living sacrifices to God, that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we should not be conformed to this world, then in verse 3, the Apostle Paul tells the Romans, it is because of grace that you ought not to think more highly 
of yourselves than perhaps you do. In other words, you Romans, he would tell them, get your perspective of yourself right. See yourself as God sees you. Because if you exclude grace from your life, you will lack humility in your life. But the reality is, of course, to ever think of yourself better than others is just totally wrong, isn't it? It's sin to do such a thing. I mean, we compare our knowledge among ourselves with each other and we might say, well, you don't know much, you don't know as much as I do, and so on. But compare your knowledge or your thinking with God's knowledge of you. And then you realize you know nothing at all, right? So notice in verse 1, David says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. That word searched means you have investigated my life. It's a legal term, a cross-examination kind of term. It's the investigation of God. He strips you down of whatever you want to have to hide yourself behind so that there's nowhere to hide. He searched us. And he's known us, David says. That's why David in verse 23 invites God, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Same word, search me, O God. With you have searched me and you have known me. Now what does David mean by that? I think David is saying to us that God has an intelligent and God has an intimate knowledge of ourselves. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, God knows what is observable, which is easy to know, right? You can see it. So, notice in verse 2, you know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. That's an observable action. So, God knows what is observable, but God knows what is not observable. You notice, he says, you discern my thoughts from afar. You don't even have to be near me to know my thoughts. God doesn't have to be here. Of course, God is with us. We believe that. But he could be a zillion miles away. And he would know exactly what you're thinking right now before the thought comes into your mind. He discerns it. He breaks it down. He strips it down. And he says, that's who you are. I know you. I know everything about you. So he he knows what can be seen and he knows what cannot be seen by us. And he knows whatever decisions I make. Look at verse 3. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. So whatever decisions I make in life, whatever ways I ponder, usually when I make a decision I weigh up the pros and the cons. I think about them. It might not be the most accurate, but to me, that's how I I would look at it and say, okay, that's not a good way to go, so don't do that. Or that's more profitable or beneficial, so think about that. We all do that. We all go through some process of making decisions so that we can live lives, go our ways, demonstrate how to live in life. Before I even do all of that, Before I make decisions and ponder them in my mind, God says, I know them completely. I know them completely. Whatever direction you take, whatever you plan, decisions. Now, by God's grace, we should bring any plans we have to the will of God and say, I want to do your will, Lord. 
to show me and demonstrate and help me and guide me. We should do that. But any direction you may take, God knows every direction. He knows all the nooks and crannies of the, the, the corners that exist. Whatever He knows everything about every decision you make. In fact, David says in verse 4, he knows my conversation. Right? He says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Before a word has even got out of my mouth, before it's even formed on my tongue, God says, I know it. I know what you want to say. I know everything. Now you know, it's, this is an interesting thing because forming of words in the mouth like I am doing now and then speaking them is an instinctive thing. You don't think really about forming words. Now occasionally we get tongue-tied. Right? It happens. You can't get the words out. Right? Happens all the time to us. But did you know that the forming of a word with consonants and syllables is an instinctive thing you don't even really think about, but you know what you want to say and you say it. Before that word is coming, you're, there it comes. It's like that. It's not like you're going, ah, 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 as if you don't know. No, if the word comes now. Sometimes, of course, as we get older, it becomes more difficult to say that with ease and eloquence, right? But... The instinctive forming of a word, God says, I know everything about the consonants and the vowels and the sounds. What you want to say, I know it. It's not hidden from me. Before it's even on your tongue to come out of your mouth, I know what it is. The words that you have. You see how he puts it? Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, you know it altogether. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Altogether. What do you mean, David? David means by altogether that, first of all, he's referring to the parts, the each part and the single parts of words and what they mean. But altogether also means the complete whole, the package, the word or words. I mean, we structure sentences because we know language. We don't think about it. They come out of our mouths without really thinking deeply about it. And sometimes we say things we don't mean, right? So we might often say or have to say, I didn't mean it that way. That's not what I meant to say. But you've said it. God says before you've even formed it on your tongue, I know it. I know it. I know it in its little parts. I can break it down for you. That's what you're going to say. And I know what it means. Because words have meaning, don't they? I mean, we don't just have a conversation and people look at you and say, no, who are you? What are you saying? No, conversation and words bind us together and hold us together. I read my Bible in my own language and I can understand what God is saying to me through the words that I recognize on the page. Sometimes there are words, right, that are beyond us. Well, you can learn what the word means. Then you start to use it. It's a good practice, by the way. You don't know words? Well, start saying a word you've never learned before, and soon enough you'll be using it in conversation. But don't get too highfalutin. <laughs> because I'll tell you, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay? But God says, I know it. Before you've formed it, instinctively I know it. Ah, listen, dear brothers and sisters, words are dangerous things, aren't they? They are so dangerous, aren't they? And they're powerful. In fact, James reminds us that the tongue is a fire. 
raging and restless, he says. It devours everything in its ways and it drips with poison. The same mouth, we bless God and we curse man. Same mouth. Same words. We just use whatever we feel like, right? Dripping with poison. By the way, poison, you know, poison is usually a hidden thing, isn't it? And I've been reading a lot of Agatha Christie mysteries. Hercule Poirot, you know. And you always read about poison in Hercule Poirot. And, and Agatha Christie herself knew something about poisons. It's injected into the chocolate, right? You can't see it, but it's in the chocolate. And you love the chocolate. And guess what? It kills you because of the poison. So poison is usually a, a hidden substance. It's like the rattlesnake that's lying in your path, right, in front of you. It's usually hidden until it rattles away. Then, oh, what is that? Words which are provocative and powerful and persuasive and words which can offend and hurt before you've even found them and had a thought process about them. God says, I know it. I know it. I know what you mean by what you say. You know, the Proverbs are wonderful for reading about the lips and the mouth, right? I mean, the Proverbs talk about lying tongues. Tongues that, are, that flatter. Tongues that deceive. The Proverbs call them smooth tongues. These are the words that we use, right? Words that backbite. We use them. But Proverbs also says a gentle tongue is like a tree of life. Beautiful. Words convey life or death. God says, I know before it's even formed in your mouth, on your tongue, I know it. Now that can be a comforting thought, but it can also be a convicting thought. Watch what you say, right? Because it's before it's even there, God says, I got it. I know it. God knows everything, and when God knows it, He knows it perfectly. Notice in verse 5 that God puts Himself into your life. Right? David says, You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. You know, God is not the kind of God that stands off at a distance and says, You get on with the business of life. If you are very desperate, well, call upon me and I'll come near and I'll help you. That's not God. No, God is, is with us and He intervenes and He interposes Himself upon us in such a way that you feel constrained by Him. Hems you in. Well, I'll go that way. God cuts you off. I'll go behind me. God has slipped behind you before you know it. You cannot, the point is you can't escape from God. From God Himself. He puts Himself into your life. So this hemming me in behind and before, laying His hand upon me, He guards me, He protects me, He obstructs my ways for my good, He prevents things from happening that I don't know about. In other words, God puts Himself into your life. You can't get away from God, David says. So David says, look, Verse 6, God knows me completely. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's the highest, greatest knowledge anybody can have. Only God has it of you and me. Now David is not writing that to convict you. He's writing that to be a benefit to you. 
to be a blessing and a comfort to you. So God knows you. So what a comforting thought that is. But secondly, look at verses 7 through 12. God is always with you, always with me, right? It is interesting to me that the presence of God, the omnipresence of God, flows from what God knows, from the omniscience of God. It naturally flows from what God knows. I mean, how can you escape from God, David has already said, in his knowledge of you. Now you can't even escape from the actual being of God. can't get away from God. I mean, where can you go, right? Verse 7, what does David say? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Well, if I go to heaven, verse 8, who's in heaven? God. Ah, well, let me go as far away from heaven as I can. Let me go to Sheol or even to hell itself. Death, the grave, doesn't matter. Who do I find there? God. Let us not for a minute imagine that hell is an absence of God. Hell is a reminder to every single person there that there is God. And they are now dealing with Him. And God is dealing with them forever and forever in torments. You can't escape God. Even if you go to the grave where you are not cognizant, don't know a thing, God's right there. If you could go there and dig up the grave, God would be down there. You would find Him. Because God is everywhere. Or if you wanted, like verse 9, to go as far away as you could, like Jonah, who ran away from God, but he didn't really, right? I mean, God's on the boat with Jonah. Hi, Jonah. Where are you going? Tarshish. Yeah, I know. I've been there all along. I knew it before you even thought about it. I got on the boat with you. When you go in the whale, I'll be with you. He's everywhere, right? He's everywhere. Notice that David says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, what are you talking about, David, the wings of the morning? Did you know that light is faster than lightning? Now, lightning is pretty impressive, right? I was watching a cricket match, uh, substitute baseball, if you like. I'm watching a cricket match between Australia and England, professional level, and it was getting towards evening, and suddenly the, the batsmen all the batter was facing the pitcher or the bowler and as the man pitched the ball at the batsman a lightning strike behind the bowler came from the sky and as it came down it just lit up the dark descending night and you couldn't really see it it was so fast but if you and I did pressed my remote and froze the frame you could see the lightning from the top and as it came down, it spread into these talons. And it just struck whatever it struck. And it was, it was like lightning so fast. But I froze it and saw it and I said, yeah, you shouldn't be out there, guys. And guess what? They said, we shouldn't be out here. And they went in. Light with God is faster than that. The strike of lightning. You can't measure it really per se. Light is here, light is there. David says, look, if I take the wings of the morning, so the rays of morning life, they come swiftly, and they go swiftly. I'm always amazed how it's dark and suddenly it's light. And yes, there seems to be a gradual lightning, but did you know exactly when it became light? No, it just was there. 
You blinked your eye, as it were, and the, the, the darkness suddenly, it's got light all of a sudden. You can't quantify that or measure that. That just happens. You can't break it down with your eyes. You just see it. If you could ride the wings of the morning light, right, that comes swiftly and goes swiftly, if you could measure their speed, you'd find God. Or if you went, as David says, dwell in the uttermost, the darkest, deepest part of any ocean, go down to the very bottom and find a crevice. And as you crawl into the crevice with your oxygen suit, you'd find God. Right? Can't get away from God. You know, David says in verse 10, even there, God will find you. He will find you. Even there your hand will lead me, your right hand shall hold me. I find that comforting, you know. Because there are going to be a lot of dark days, a lot of difficult days that are going to come my way in 2022 and yours. Wherever I go, whatever happens in 2022, God is with me. God is with you. Always. Not some of the time. But he's always, he's as near as you can even try to comprehend. In fact, how difficult is it really to flee from God? As David says, it's, it's difficult to flee from God and it's as easy as anything for God to find you. Do you know why? Because he's never left you. He's always with you. He's always present. In fact, the darkness, verses 11 and 12, is blazing light to God. Now, you know, sometimes you switch off your lights and boy, you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's so dark, isn't it? To God, that darkness, whatever it is, is just like the blazing sun shining on it. It's clear, perfectly light to God. So your darkest times of life shine brightly before God. When you think you're going through the darkest, deepest way of life to God, that way is clear. And bright. Now, I'd rather trust my darkness and my dark hours to a God who sees that about me so beautifully, so clearly, so perfectly. In fact, the night is like the day to God. And so instead of trying to escape from God, David says, look, God has already found you. He's with you. Why do you want to run away from him? In fact, wherever you go, God is already there. You cannot escape from God. So what does that mean practically? Let me stop my sins. Let me stop my struggles. Let me give them up against God because they're futile and a waste of time. What I do in the night, what I hide from God, God says the sun is just blazing down right upon you. I see it clearly. Cannot escape from God. That can be a comfort to you or that can convict you. Thirdly, verses 13 through 22, God has total control over your life. How's that possible? He's all-powerful, right? That's how it's possible. He made all things. So the prophet Isaiah says, in Isaiah 44, 24, Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. I know 
all things. Or John 1.3, all things were made by him, were made through the word. Without him, nothing has been made that was made. All things. So now I know God created all things and God controls all things. Colossians 1.16, all things were created by him. Can there be anything more comforting to know that God, that the Lord Jesus Christ, has not only made everything, but he maintains everything. Maintains everything. Why is it that the atoms or the blood doesn't just run out of my body? It's God, right? Isn't that what David says? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Who can know it? I mean, think of the masks that people wear. Right? Now think of the mask. What does the mask do? It covers your nose. Do you know what the nose, the nostrils do? Well, yes, they breathe in, they inhale, and they exhale. But have you ever considered the direction? They go down. Do you know why the nostrils go down? So that you are not taking in, when you breathe in, the air that you have exhaled and that is gone. Who designed that? Right? Who designed nostrils? To, to, to do this without you thinking about it without you worrying about it right so that you are not but if you put a mask over your face you, your nostrils prevent you from getting that out now I'm not saying there aren't times we, don't, we shouldn't wear masks or whatever right? I'm not saying that what I am saying is a beautiful design I'm fearfully wonderfully made in all my parts right who is so powerful that he can do that Perfectly. God, right? God. I cannot think of anything more comfortable to know that God made me and that God maintains me. You know, we, we do our exercises. We try, try to keep fit. We try to keep healthy. We try to eat right. We try to do this. We try to do that because we think, well, that'll help me live longer. But the real reality is that God maintains you second by second, infinitesimally second by second, whatever it is that time. It's God. God who keeps us, right? What a glorious truth that is, isn't it? I mean, it's everywhere in the Bible, right? He made you, God says, in the womb, or David says, verse 13, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. He brought everything together in the womb. And notice David's words, my inward parts. What does he mean by that? Not what you see on the outside. Look, my nose, my ears. You see what's my hair, what's on the outside. No, no, that's not what he means. He's talking about what you cannot see. Verse 15, when I was made in secret. There are things about your body you don't see. You just believe that they function, and they do, by God's kindness and God's grace, right? He formed that. He fashioned that conception and the development in the womb. Notice David's language, he knitted together, verse 13. That means he weaved things together. He interleaved things together. Those things don't happen by evolution, you know. It's not possible, right? There's not enough time to ever even begin the process with evolution. God, let us make man in our own image. And taking a little bit of dust. I mean, imagine, we're made of dirt, right? And this is what he has created. The pinnacle of his creation. It's not dogs and cats, though you love them. 
And it's not cows and owls and whatever, crickets, that you love more than you love yourself. Oh, we, people try to convince us they love their dogs better than they love people. But people really love themselves because God has created such a, a glorious and beautiful creation. And yes, we are affected by sin, but there's beauty in what God has made. So in verse 16, he says, My fame is not hidden from you, verse 15. Intricately woven, look at verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. In other words, every single moment, every single day of my life is determined, written, recorded by God in his book. Recorded before any days that I'd ever lived began. Written down by God. Every day, right now, you, here, in the presence of God, God records your individual being here today. And you know, generally speaking, as a preacher, I know exactly where you sit. And you're very consistent, most of you. Right? You stay in the same place. If you shift places, it'll take me a few seconds to adjust. But then I got you. And if you shift again, I might say something to you. Why do you keep moving around? Right? So I know where you are. Right? I know exactly where you are. I've recorded it. But what is that compared to God recording every day of my life? Every single moment written by God, determined by God before I, those days had even began. So outside of time and outside of history, God has recorded my life, my days, how long I live, where I live, who I am, who I marry, who my children are and their children, my grandchildren, everything about me is recorded every moment and every day. So what does David do with that incredible information, right? Look at verse 14. I praise you. I worship you, God, because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and I know it. My soul, my deepest being knows it. That's why abortion is so abhorrent to God, right? So wicked and so false, because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And look at all the language. You formed my inner parts. You knitted me together. My fame my, uh, is intricately woven. My unformed substance. All of these words to describe what you cannot control and what you cannot make and what you cannot see and is only made by God. That's why abortion must go. That's why it must go. It's diabolical. It's a dismantling of what God says is beautiful and glorious. So there's a divine, the divine complexity in creation. Is, I mean, in conception, right? It's some, it's some, in some sense, it's like creation. Conception in the womb. It's wonderful, verse 14, right? Wonderful are your works. I know it. You know it. Now, why does David say that? Because he wants to overwhelm his soul with the fact that God knows everything about him. Everything. God has in his mind instantaneously conceived and accomplished all of that. Now look, there's quite a few of us here this morning with lots of days behind us. And every one of them God knows. And God has brought some of those days together. And we have crossed paths. And we are still together. God has written them all. Isn't that why friendships are so beautiful for a Christian? 
Because we see the hand of God. That's why fellowship is so crucial. Because that's God weaving together time and history from outside of time and history. So that we would be amazed by what God... Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Romans 11.34 There's nobody who stood next to God and said, Now, let me give you a bit of advice about Russ. Nobody. God doesn't need anybody. In fact, everything I think I know about myself, God says, you know nothing about yourself. I know you better because I made you fearfully, wonderfully made. So even my thoughts, my mind, my thinking stands open to the blazing light of the glory of God. That's verse 2, right? You know when I sit, you know when I stand up, you discern what I think from afar. But the thoughts of God, they're infinite, aren't they? They're glorious. Look at verse 18, or 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Now, isn't the thoughts, or aren't the thoughts of God seen in the creation of God, or the conception that has been brought about, the forming in the womb? That's what God's thought was thinking. God did that. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. You can't count them, right? If I could count them, they're more than the sand. I awake, I'm still with you. God's thoughts about you are beyond your understanding and beyond my understanding, David says. You cannot even count them. And David says, that's precious to me. Verse 17, that God has thought about me in this way and as all these thoughts as well. That's why David says, lastly, verse 23 and 24, God cares absolutely about you. You know, there is evil in this world, verses 19 through 22, the wicked. But they cannot win against God and against the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, you and I are surrounded by sin and surrounded by wickedness. That's the nature of the world in which we live because it's fallen, but it cannot overcome Christ and it cannot overcome God. And I'm in God's hands. Why should I fear the world, right? It can't be overcome by the world. In fact, John 16.33, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Why are you fearful? Don't be fearful. Don't be afraid. Be encouraged. That's comfort to me. The world is filled with trouble, right? But the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not comprehended it. John 1.5. Do not be overcome with evil, Paul said in Romans 12, but overcome evil with good. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith given by God. 1 John 5, verse 4. So David, you know, this is the, this is the application now, at the end. David tests himself, or to put it another way, he asks God to test him. He says, search me, O God. And what does he mean by that? He means investigate me. He says, try me. He means examine me. Now you see, why does David do that? Because you might think, well, that's, a little, that's a little painful. Search me. Try me. Well, if God did that, who can stand? But you see, David does this because he says, but God knows me completely. And God is always with me. And God has total control <coughs> over my life. That what David is saying, I want more of what you are, God. I want more. 
I want to think more on God. I want to think more of God. So know my heart. Know my thoughts. Discern my life, Lord. You see how wonderful it is to know that God knows you? How wonderful. What, there can't be better knowledge than that. That God knows me. God cares for me. God comforts me. God loves me. There's nothing better than that. The world may accuse you. And it does. But the only one who matters is God. And you with God. So David invites the scrutiny of God. You know why? Because he's not like the wicked. He's not like the wicked. Verse 19 through 22. He's not like the world. You see, every one of us who believe in the Lord Jesus, we depend upon the grace and the mercy of Christ and the righteousness of Christ to be accepted before the Father. To stand before God. David is not claiming freedom from all sin. No, what David is claiming, I'm not devoted to sin. I don't want that. So search me. Try me. And see, he says, verse 24, if there's any grievous way in me. You see, the grievous way is to be devoted to sin. The grievous way is sin. But to not be like that is to want God who confirms, controls all things and who leads me to the end in the way everlasting. Right? So this is the final comfort. Calvin puts it like this. <clears throat> he says, David asks God to watch over him to whom God has shown so much kindness and will go to the end and to not forsake him in the midst of his days. You know, the greatest comfort is to know God like this, isn't it? You know, all the physical troubles you have, all the psychological troubles you have, all the other troubles, God can take care of them. God can comfort you in the midst of them. God cares. All the distresses, all the comforts, they're nothing compared to what God cannot do for you and can do for you. So which comfort are you seeking? Manipulating your own life, trying to work out your own, your own ways to make sure it's the best way, provide for your future so that I'm secure, do whatever it is, constantly worrying about this or worrying about that, when God says, I know everything about you, you can't hide from me, I know it all. <clears throat> what way are you seeking for comfort? I'm going to close with some words by J.C. Ryle, which I love. This is what he says. He says, the future history of Christians, both in life and death, is foreknown by Christ. The Lord tells Simon Peter, when you are old, then you will stretch forth your hand, and another will gird you and carry you where you don't want to go. And those words, without controversy, were a prediction of the manner of Peter's death. And they were fulfilled in later days. It is commonly supposed when Peter was crucified as a martyr for Jesus' sake. So that the time and the place and the painfulness to the flesh and the blood of the disciples' death were all matters foreseen by the Master. The truth before us, J.C. Ryle says, is eminently full of comfort to a true believer. To obtain foreknowledge of things to come would in most cases for us be a most sorrowful possession. To know what was going to befall you and yet not able to prevent it would make you absolutely miserable. But it is an unspeakable consolation to remember that your entire future is known and foreranged by Christ. 
There is no such thing as luck, chance, accident in the journey of your life. Everything from beginning to end is foreseen by Jesus and arranged by Jesus who is too wise to make a mistake and too loving to do you any harm. Let us store this truth, he says, in our minds and use it diligently in all the days of darkness through which you may still yet pass. In such days we should lean back on the thought, Christ knows this, and he knew it when he called me to be his disciple. It is foolish to repine and murmur over the troubles of those whom we love. We should rather fall back on the thought that all is well done. It is useless to fret and be rebellious when we ourselves have bitter cups to drink. We should rather say, this also is from the Lord. He foresaw it. He could have prevented it if it had not been for my good. Happy are those who can enter into the spirit of that old saint who said, I have made a covenant with my God, my Lord, that I will never take amiss anything that he does to me. That's comfort. Let's pray together. Now, Father, thank you for this time and this word. Thank you for the great comforting words of David that meant so much to him and encouraged him, and may they do the same for us. Now we present ourselves to you as we come to this table which lies before us with the bread and the wine to see that it all began in time when Jesus laid down his life for us sacrificed himself in our place. And so we pray that we might comprehend what these things mean. So we give ourselves to you now as we participate at the table of the Lord. And may these truths that we've proclaimed and thought about this morning be precious to each of us as we face this new year before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.